Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. My guest today is Ricardo Correa, head of digital currencies at R3. Ricardo's team develop and offer products and services to central banks and financial institutions that are exploring CBDCs and fiat-backed stablecoins. R3 is working with a number of central banks on CBDC projects, including Project Dunbar, Project Jura, and the e-Krona with the Swedish Central Bank. Ricardo, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, uh, Dominic. Uh, lovely to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Now, uh, a lot has obviously happened uh, in the recent past, but the issuers of what might be called respectable uh, stablecoins, such as Circle, the USDC stablecoin, uh, see themselves essentially as issuers of commercial bank money. In line with that, they would like to enjoy the same status as banks and thereby have uh, direct access to central bank money through an account at the central bank. Is it your view that they should be given that access? Yeah, interesting question. I think we're seeing a few of those models emerge. I mean, the most obvious one is finality uh, coming out of the UK where they have, after you know, a long process, been uh, granted an omnibus account, uh, the Bank of England within the RTGS. So it looks a little bit like you know, a synthetic CBDC, if you like, or a private uh, or rather regulated stablecoin. Um, so you know, the model is certainly uh, emerging. We're not sure necessarily you know, whether the retail side, and, and it's important, obviously, to bifurcate what, you know, a USDC is doing versus a, a finality or even a party or more recently, one being more focused at the wholesale end and the other being more kind of uh, kind of positioned within retail. I suggest at the retail end, what does that do? Does that disintermediate commercial banks? You've got, you know, privately issued money into the retail network versus a finality and a party or another's that are looking at the wholesale end versus the retail end. So yeah, we can certainly see that emerging. Now, algorithmic stable coins, we saw back in, in May, the, the collapse of the Luna Terra um, stable coin. Uh, a number of other algorithmic stable coins have also um, come to a sticky end. Now, the, the question that occurs to me here, it's, it seems pretty obvious that, that algorithmic stable coins are an experiment which uh, will be put on the back burner for quite a while now and, and, and are almost certain never to be brought within the, the scope of, of regulation by central banks. But if we think about stable coins as a whole, it can't be long before we see one that is too big to fail. And that could be an asset back one just as easily as a, well, not, probably not quite as easy, but um, it could be a, an asset back one could fail in the same way that a that an algorithmic one does. So do you think that the decentralized finance markets, which are the, the main users of, of stable coins, actually need a lender of last resort function? And if so, should that be a central bank or should it be something different from a central bank? Yeah, great question. Um, so I think it's important, again, to look at DeFi and perhaps two lenses. So today we see a lot of public DeFi, and by that I mean, you know, uh, most of the DeFi uh, protocols and applications we see sitting on Ethereum, perhaps 95% of them today, maybe there's a bit of corrosion with others uh, jumping into the space. But one of the opportunities that is emerging is this notion of institutional DeFi, where you have, you know, private networks that are emerging within the institutional space that would allow DeFi type products and services to be offered within a safer network, so to speak, where you've got, you know, the right controls, you know who the actors are, you've got the right AML KYC, um, and you have uh, players and actors that are offering DeFi type uh, services, you know, lending, insurance, and so on. Um, but with a network that's known and uh, controlled, and with a form of money that is safer, so to speak. So, yeah, perhaps there is, you know, on the, so maybe we call that institutional DeFi. Certainly that is something that uh, the commercial banks are looking at. There seems to be a much safer environment to participate, certainly in the institutional space. But on the, on the public space, I think, you know, one of the, one of the, the draws into DeFi is volatility. You're trying to, you know, you're trying to, 
you know, leverage and make money on the ups and downs uh, of of uh, of the money that's that's being used, um, and lent and insured and so on. So, you know, is there an opportunity for a safer form of money within that space? Perhaps. Certainly, that was the case in the beginning of the year. There was lots of interest on the public sector looking at issuing into DeFi and into the public space. Of course, that's changed significantly over the last six to nine months. So, uh, yeah, listen, notionally, it makes sense. Will we get there? I'm not quite sure with the landscape the way it is right now. If I've understood you correctly, what you're saying is that if commercial banks start to issue stable coins, they are uh, regulated already, uh, and therefore they would naturally come within the scope of, of the lender of last resort functionality of, uh, of a central bank that the central bank that regulates them but central banks of course are not just um lenders of last resort. you've begun to to hint at this uh they execute all their other functions you know controlling the money supply maintaining financial stability and indeed ultimately operating the the payments infrastructure the rtgs system they do all of that through commercial banks but if we start to look further into the future and think well perhaps commercial banks don't continue to exist in their present form. They start to get replaced by uh, entities which would, which I suppose are already familiar in a way from the, uh, from the DeFi markets. They're perhaps they're decentralized autonomous organizations. Uh, they're very different from uh, the, the public companies that are funded through um, you know, insurance-backed deposits from from retail investors. So I'm I'm wondering here whether a, a central bank could, if the world starts to evolve that way, central banks start to change their own nature. They themselves perhaps become DAOs. The CBDC itself becomes a liability of all the citizens of the country, and all the citizens of the country, in fact, have an ownership stake in that central bank. And the central bank starts to write smart contracts, which it uses to perform these functions of controlling the money supply, maintaining financial stability, operating the payments system. Do you do you think that idea is just too far out to, to be realistic in, on any sort of time scale? Yeah, it's an interesting idea. And I think, you know, nothing's off the table, but I'd suggest to you that, um, well, firstly, it's a, it's a great idea and makes it more appealing and that the citizens would be stakeholders uh, kind of of... Mm-hmm of uh, of that CBDC. The reality is, is that it's fairly unlikely in the short to medium term, you know, the political, the, la- uh, the political, um, legal and policy considerations, along with some of the technical complexity uh, would probably overwhelm that idea. Um, and if I turn to some of the projects that we've worked on, which are uh, in that same space, if you like Project Jura, you know, issuance of um, central bank money into regional networks and that the, that money being used by external networks in order to settle obligations. You know, I spent a year and a half on that project and, you know, I'd suggest a year of it uh, or close to was spent on trying to navigate the legal and political kind of uh, uh, landscapes on both sides and trying to find harmony where you know money could be uh, issued as a digital form and then leveraged and used as a form of settlement. So I think we're a long way away from that. I think those ideas are really interesting. Um, so yeah, and you know the public sector is not taking anything off the table. Looking at AMMs, looking at DAOs, looking at you know uh, private issued money, public issued money. So it's an interesting idea for sure. Is there? Assuming that idea is, is a little too far out uh, to overcome all those political and policy considerations you've referred to, is there a compromise here? Uh, what might be called in that famous oxymoronic phrase CDFI, in which the central bank continues to operate in effect a centralized uh, monetary policy, while the banks go down this DAO issuing a private money onto, onto possibly public as well as private blockchains. And so the central bank doesn't become a DAO, but all the banks become that, but it is able to supervise and regulate the system, in effect, by acting as a filter on what sort of uh, financial institutions are active, what sort of products they're developing, dApps, if you like. Uh, And that way they control access to central bank money by remaining centralized themselves, but also encouraging a tremendous amount of innovation and experimentation to go on in the financial services markets. So it's a it's a 
it's a camel. It's a, 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 a combination of the centralized and the decentralized. Do you think a, a compromise, compromise like that is viable? Yeah, I do. I think we're seeing, you know, these bridging type currencies, certainly within the exchanges, you're seeing stable coins as a, as a way to minimize volatility as a bridge on and off. I think certainly within, you know, this oxymoron kind of CD5, as you mentioned, I think there is an opportunity uh, for central banks to, to certainly participate um, in trying to bridge, you know, traditional finance with, you know, dis, uh, distributed finance. And so, you know, Andrew Bailey uh, said just recently at a BIS forum that the central banks, you know, are designed to encourage innovation, uh, but encourage it in a safe way. And so there certainly seems to be appetite. Um, some of the projects and the work that we do uh, is exploring that opportunity with the central banks. Mm -hmm. So in a way, it might, I suppose, provide a, a useful experiment for central banks to build an infrastructure for a for a kind of decentralized CBDC, but from what you're saying, it sounds like it, it's it's a way off. So, let's imagine that the the financial service industry, the banking industry, does go down that fully blockchain Web three DeFi uh, path. How would a central bank operate a CBDC in that environment? How would it retain control? How would it retain monetary sovereignty? That's a great question. Um, so if we look at, you know, Web3, Web3 is, you know, a combination of kind of the emerging technologies. I think some of them we we look at uh, and we've been looking at for a while, sovereign identity being one of them. You know, in my mind, you know, Web3 is about bringing your identity to the internet versus, you know, the internet holding many, many different forms of your identity. Um, and so, you know, getting self-sovereign identity right, the ability for you to arrive at a door, show your identity, uh, be allowed in, and then put your identity back in your pocket, so to speak. And then once you're through the door, you're a trusted actor. I think that's an important uh, aspect. But to your point, I think, you know, so once you're in this world, you know, Web3, uh, different experience, uh, you know, you're shifting the power, so to speak, back to retail. Um, and now the retailer not only has his identity, but has different forms of money in order to pay for goods and services. I think the trick is going to convince, you know, retailers to use one form of money versus the other. And so, you know, the big question around retail CBDC is, well, what's the value? What's the value proposition above all the, the, the various payment instruments and the payment options that we have today? Why would, you know, uh, Dominic use a CBDC versus you know, another form of money that he's been using for a long time. So I think there is opportunity there. I think, you know, there's there's a whole bunch of things that we point to, such as, you know, the the cost of CBDC, the 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 uh, fact that your CBDC is a bearer, the bearer assets, should something happen, you can go back to the central bank or the issuer in order to make the claim and so on. But in my mind, there's more work to be done in trying to ensure that the value proposition of a CBDC, certainly in a Web3 space, has value for the retailer. Uh, today, we see CBDC having clear value within wholesale, and you know we're working through the retail uh, opportunity at the moment. It's an interesting point you raised there about the market will decide its, its adoption by by merchants and by consumers to, as to what's the most convenient way for them to pay and be paid and it's interesting because on the face of it you were thinking about this without ever referring to practice at all you would assume that a cbdc would drive stable coins out of business and the reason i say that is because when you when you look even at the asset-backed stable coins let alone the the algorithmic ones they all have these rather curious collateral arrangements uh they're not back one-to-one -one by cash deposits it would be be madness if they if they were because they couldn't make any money there'd be no point in setting up a, a stable because they can't be they have to invest in treasury bills they have to invest in uh in commercial paper and other money market instruments uh you know being 100 reserved would, would drive them out of business at the outset now a central bank doesn't face that that limitation uh so a cbdc on the face of it is always going to be superior uh to us to a stable coin and i wonder if the uh the real DeFi enthusiasts the you know 
the Satoshi Nakamoto ideologists, if you like, the true libertarians shouldn't actually embrace a CBDC as a better way to underwrite the decentralized financial future, which they have long anticipated, rather than sort of fretting about being the loss of privacy and central government control. I mean, is a CBDC a better solution than a stable coin of whatever kind to fulfilling the, the Nakamoto dream? in your view? Well, that's a great question. Super controversial. I think, you know, just recently looking at, um, certainly at Cybos, maybe three weeks ago, lots of controversy around the CBDC. Of course, surveillance is a big, a big question, you know, being centralized, rebuilding the world as we have today, really asking kind of, you know, hard questions around the value of you know, a CBDC versus others. You know, in my view today, I think there's a coexistence story. I think there's value in exploring the coexistence of both public and private money. Of course, today we have that. Uh, very, very few people, I'd argue, if you're sitting around a dinner table at a, at a dinner party and you ask folks whether they know the difference between, you know, the cash in their pocket and the, the balance on their kind of, uh, you know, Barclays app, so to speak, with mm -hmm. the difference between one form of money and the other. So I think there's a bunch of education that's required so that people actually know the difference between a stable coin issued by a, a private entity versus a CBDC issued by a public, uh, public uh, kind of entity, a, a central bank. And then, you know, do you really care as a retailer? So um, there's lots of different forms of money today, you know, on the, uh, on the private side. Um, I'd suggest to you that there's more work to be done from the central banks uh, in order to convince uh, kind of the retail end that there is, you know, uh, an option for them to use that is a safer form of money. I'd say to you also that on this, on the on the stablecoin side, you know, how do we get to a point where there is more trust around the collateral? So, you know, algorithmic backed, uh, asset backed. And there's, there's a bunch of things that are emerging. So proof of reserves, proof of ownership, real-time proof of collateral, proof of balance. You know, there's a bunch of technical things we can do in order to provide, you know, more, uh, more safety on the stablecoin side. And then there's, you know, manual processes that we could think about auditing and so on. Those are, those are harder to do. Um, but I, I'm pretty keen on exploring these, you know, proof of proof of backing, proof of uh, balance, uh, proof of collateral, real-time proof of collateral. But there's always windows margins where you could be exposed. So, you know, still more work to be done there. But I think uh, over time, it'll be harder and harder to understand which form of money is safer, mm -hmm. um, certainly at the retail end. So more education is required there. Just be clear on what you mean by Windows, where you might be exposed. This is where you think you bought a, or a stable coin, which is backed by this type of collateral. But of course, it's changing all the time. So by the time you, you get to sell it, it's, uh, it's a different form of collateral. Is that what you mean by Windows? Yeah. So, you know, you, 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 you've got some stable coin that you think is backed one to one by the dollar. You're holding that for a day, you know, the next day it's, you know, backed by half a dollar and some HQLA and that's not what you want. So how do you make sure that you're, you're always aware of what the backing is so that your risk uh, profile is reduced or you're, you're, you're managing your risk? I mean, it goes, it gets harder though. So you're using a stable one just for a few seconds, perhaps in order to do a transaction. Uh, can you guarantee that the backing that that stablecoin has when you are using it to execute a transaction is the same as when you bought it. And so, you know, are there ways and techniques that we can say, hey, Dominic's going to buy this stablecoin, it's one-to-one -one backed by a dollar, and it will remain one-to-one -one backed by a dollar guaranteed for the next 60 seconds. You know, so can we reduce the time windows? Today, it's very, very hard to do that, of course, but, you know, that's the idea. And do you feel confident in the technologies the, the secure enclaves, the zero knowledge proofs, trust the technology, not the institution that's issuing it. Mm -hmm. Or are we, you know, I was talking about this yesterday, you know, Bitcoin hasn't been hacked since it, it started, but it's still not, it's still not fully trusted. Consumers are not ready to trust uh, Bitcoin, or they're not ready to trust secure enclaves and zero knowledge proofs either. What sort of timescale are we looking at before 
we can start saying merchants and consumers are comfortable with this uh, this form of payment because they trust the technology. They don't care about who issued it. Maybe a couple of generations, uh, Dominic, as I, as I think about my kids and the way that they use technology and the trust that they have, you know, maybe it's one or two generations away. You know, we've, we've been tainted, if you like, by, you know, Mount Gox and a whole bunch of other things yeah. that, that, that have given us that perception. Um, but just turning to zero knowledge proofs, that holds tremendous promise. I think there's a lot of research going on there, but it's quite early. Um, still a bit slow, but tremendously exciting to think about how we might bring that to bear. On the other hand, today we have secure enclaves. You know, there's been a lot of work in securing those enclaves. Today, I'd suggest to you that there's more trust um, in the secure enclave opportunity. We've done a lot of work with central banks, you know, to secure the back chain. So in a retail space, how do you ensure that, you know, the payments that Dominic is making on the CBDC are private and anonymous and not visible to anybody, including the issuer? And so there are techniques in order to ensure that, but it does require the use of a secure enclave. I mean, technically it works, uh, but there are still limitations, of course. Um, so, you know, where do we get to a point where you trust the tech versus the human? I think we're seeing uh, more and more uh, examples of uh, human actors, you know, not doing what they should be doing. Um, the technology as well. I mean, to your point, it hasn't been hacked since 2009. So uh, I'm not quite sure where that infliction point is, but it's probably uh, a little bit further out than you and I would like or expect rather. Yeah. I was just musing on the back of your anecdote there about people at dinner parties not understanding that the, the notes and coins in their wallets are central bank money, but their bank deposits are, are commercial bank money. And isn't it ironic that we worry that when that central bank money gets digitized, as opposed to being physical, we have a surveillance and loss of privacy problem. Right. But it but it made me it made me think that actually CBDCs certain CBDC designs could form a natural bridge between the traditional financial markets, the centralized financial markets we have today, and the decentralized financial markets, the innovative markets, which we'd like to see come into being tomorrow, because you could use central bank money in digital form in, in, in both markets. So it becomes a kind of um, a bridge between the old world and the new. That's that's a way in which a CBDC could actually promote and sponsor innovation in yes. much the same way that stablecoins have 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 made DeFi possible. Do you do you do you believe that? I do. Yeah, on the surface of it, I think it makes a lot of sense, and there's been a lot of work, uh, certainly this year, around exploring that opportunity by the public sector. So you know, uh, can a central bank issue a CBDC into a private network and a wholesale network, and then have that money? distributed into DeFi networks. Of course, that raises a whole bunch of questions, capital flows, um, you know, security, uh, kind of identity, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the use of that money not being well controlled, the controls that are put on the money on the wholesale network, you know, carrying through into these public networks. So there's a lot of technical uh, considerations but at the surface of it, it makes sense. You know, today you'd argue that you know money is issued um, by the central bank into the wholesale network, the, the 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 commercial banks then make that available to Dominic and Ricardo, and we then go and draw that money out of an ATM or what have you, and then go and use that money wherever we'd like. You know, so so do we allow that same paradigm, and how do we ensure that you know in certain countries they don't really mind that you take the money out the country, so capital flows are fine. In others, there's real hard controls. So, you know, there's no one single brush for all of this stuff. I think notionally it makes sense. Um, there are techniques such as whitelists and so on to help mitigate some of that. But yeah, I think I think there is certainly an opportunity there. The, the, the one thing that will unlock that that we've been exploring is interoperability. So how do you ensure the interoperability of you know, money from CBDC networks into DeFi networks, from sovereign networks into public networks and so on. So interoperability in 2023, although it's been important over the last few years, I think it becomes super critical in 2023 uh, to really uh, kind of double down on interop. 
for these opportunities to be more possible. What you're really saying when you're when you're describing interoperability between CBDC networks and DeFi networks is it actually makes the innovations that are going on in the DeFi markets much more accessible because it feels safer for consumers, for merchants, for companies generally to access those DeFi protocols. It, it's much simpler, apart from anything else, than going via stable coins, which is what they have to do today. You know, that complex on and off ramp route between your fiat currency bank account and a stable coin on a blockchain network is pretty off-putting for people. So actually, CBDC is interoperable with those would probably help those markets grow. I, I wonder if that's I wonder if that's a, a role which central banks want to find themselves playing. I think you're saying that they do really. They want to encourage innovation, but want it to be safe. Yeah, I think it makes. I'm not sure to your point around accessibility. I mean, maybe maybe you're right. I mean, does it make it more accessible? Yeah, sure. To your point, there's a bit of friction there. You know, how do I how do I get the 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 cash or the the payment instruments that I need in order to go and participate, mm -hmm. and if you're new to the space, very very difficult. But if it's like, oh look, I've got a bank account, and now I can transfer that into a CBDC kind of tokens, and now I can use those in these networks. Um, so yes, certainly it makes it more accessible in that sense, and it makes it safer in that I know that you know this form of money is backed. It doesn't necessarily make it safer in that, you know, you need to be well-educated in the DeFi networks and protocols and applications that you're getting into, right? There's a lot of uh, considerations there. Um, early days, lots of rug pulls and others that you, you know, you get, you get lured into these uh, DeFi networks. And then if you're not well-educated, you may be kind of at, at high risk. So yeah, it does allow the onboarding and offboarding much easier. It does allow you to participate. It doesn't necessarily reduce the risk. Mm -hmm. Let's explore a bit how a CBDC could make those protocols more uh, accessible. And if we look at what stablecoins are doing already, they are they're going multi-chain for exactly this reason. It's obvious to them that not every DeFi protocol is going to be uh, built on on the Ethereum blockchain, so they have to become make themselves available on other blockchain protocols and that's a that is an interoperability story which stablecoin issuers are, are are narrating if you like so if we think about how a cbdc could play a positive role in accelerating that interoperability narrative the first question that comes up is could you imagine a cbdc being issued directly onto a public blockchain hmm. You know, when the year kicked off uh, this year, 2022, I know that we, uh, we've we talked about, you know, the, the decline of crypto, certainly the winter kicking in in November 2021. Yeah. I'd suggest to you that even in December, January, it was still pretty hot, right? There was still a lot of fever around DeFi and NFTs and the crypto market was really pumping. But it was, it was starting to kind of plateau. You know, I had several conversations uh, on the public side where you know some of the central banks were interested in exploring the issuance of CBDC into the public side directly um, just to better understand what would that mean what would the levers of controls that I'd have or or you know what are the things that would be missing in order for me to really do this and and then what what would be the motivation so it was really early exploratory I'd say to you now that there's less interest in doing that, you know, um, as the as the winters certainly kicked in and settled in, I don't see any of those conversations anymore. But I think the 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 question around direct issuance, you know, maybe in a few years' time when we get the right governance controls, you know, into the public networks, the right transparency, um, the right kind of risk mitigation controls, et cetera, perhaps that'll become an opportunity. What does that mean? You know, does the current financial landscape get disintermediate to some degree? Who knows? I'd say it's really early. Um, today, the most prevalent model that we see from a central bank is the intermediated or hybrid, meaning that the central bank still expects to issue into a wholesale network. And then the wholesale network will then distribute that money into, you know, DeFi or, you know, the traditional space or what have you. So it's changed a little bit, I'd suggest you. 
Okay, so second question, is there a way if if CBDCs are getting issued for all the reasons you've just described onto wholesale private permission networks, if you like, how can you make that CBDC available onto other blockchains? How can you achieve interoperability? Yeah, good question. I think there's two main uh, approaches we're exploring today. So cross-atomic swaps, meaning that, you know, an issuer issues into their network and the asset never leaves that network, but the ownership of the asset will change. And so you, you've got, you know, certainly that was the model that we explored in Jura, where the cross-atomic swap allows the asset to be used to settle an obligation on another network, but the asset never moves and never leaves that network. That provides assurance to the issuer that they have full sovereign control of that asset. The other model is, you know, burning and minting, or uh, where you burn the asset on the one network that it was originally issued to, and then you remint it um, on another network in order to be used. And then we see other kind of other techniques around wrapping uh, those instruments or those assets where you might escrow the asset on the one network and then you, you mint it on. So for example, you'd, uh, you'd take a CBDC from, let's say a private network quarter, you'd then reissue that on an Ethereum network, but you'd wrap it in an ERC20 token and you'd be able to use that. And then when you redeem it, you unwrap it and then you release the escrow on the quarter side and vice versa. So there's a way, there's a few ways of doing it. Each carries different pros and cons and considerations. You know, I think the central banks certainly uh, today would probably prefer the the, uh, the cross-atomic swap, safer. We know that we can control the asset, we have control of it. As the technology matures, you know, the burning and minting might be uh, an opportunity that they'd explore in more depth. But I think there's more work to be done around governance controls. You know, one of the big things there, uh, Dominic, is um, I use this analogy quite a bit. If you bought an electric product, uh, whatever it may be, let's say a hairdryer, what have you, you know, uh, behind that, it has a sticker that says, if you break the seal, you break the guarantee of the product. And so, you know, if you tamper with it, well, then you've lost the guarantee of the issuer. A little bit like a CBDC, you know, the central bank or the issuer will issue a CBDC with a whole bunch of controls and guarantees around it. Now, as you reissue this money onto other networks, can you ensure that you don't break that seal? And if you do, you kind of lose the guarantee of the issuer. So that's the, there's a lot of work being done around ensuring that we don't break the seals, so to speak, as these currencies move from one network to another. Sadly, I didn't have much use for a, a hairdryer, Ricardo. <laughs> but but I, this may be a stupid that example. Uh, uh, my third question in this area, which may be a stupid question, is whether there is a fundamental constraint on those techniques you've described, the atomic swap, the, the minting and the and the escrow, which is that um, does, a, does a CBDC, which is interoperable, have to be multi-currency? Central banks have made pretty clear they're uncomfortable about um, about losing monetary sovereignty. Does that prevent any particular a CBDC denominated in dollars or or sterling or or euro or whatever? Does that prevent it going multi-chain or are, are multi-chain and multi-currencies totally separate things? Yeah, completely. I think multi-chain, uh, multi-currency, uh, completely uh, different conversations, certainly in the work that I'm doing. So multi-chain, you know, as we talked about different techniques to make your money kind of portable uh, so that it can be issued on private, moved to public and vice versa. But the currency doesn't change. It is what it is. It's, you know, a pound, a USD or what have you. Um, multi-currency, uh, we're seeing more multi-currency and networks such as Dunbar, for example, where you've got multiple issuers into kind of a, a currency network. Um, and those multi-issuers, obviously different currencies, and our participants in those networks can pick one currency versus another. Um, and then in that space, we're also seeing things like AMMs, of course, um, automated market makers, where you're pairing currencies and trying to create exchanges and so on. So yeah, I'd bifurcate that multi-currency versus multi-chain to very different conversations. Mm -hmm. But to see it from a, the point of view of a central bank on any on any one network, the Bank of England would would have one node, the Federal Reserve would have another, the ECB would would have 
a, a node on on every network where they felt it was safe to be is that is that the world you're describing so they retain monetary sovereignty by being part of those networks and supplying their particular cbdc to people who want to use it inside those networks but they're always seeing what's going on they're in full control they retain monetary sovereignty Yes, that's right. That certainly is a model. Uh, the Jura model certainly uh, kind of explored that, where um, the Swiss Central Bank and the French Central Bank obviously issued into their own sovereign networks, and then they had a node uh, in uh, the SDS, SDX network in order to ensure that they uh, continued to maintain the control of the asset ownership. Um, so you'd you know, at, at scale, if you squint at that, you go, gosh, that's going to be difficult to manage. But, you know, how, if you look at the world today, you know, 195, 200 odd countries, you know, where do you want your money to be available? Probably not all of them. Some countries have very stringent kind of controls around where their money is used and not. Um, but today, yeah, one of the models is where you have sovereign networks and, you know, let's call it a a USD versus a pound, and the central bank would have their own networks, but they would have a node in each other's, so that you know you'd have uh, you'd have money that could, or certainly assets and ownership that would flow between those. Yeah. So it'd be like the central banks would be their own correspondent banks in that model. Yeah, it's kind of a you know again if you squint you go, gosh, that looks a little bit like correspondent banking, but central banks. You know, um, and the model kind of works. You know, you've got it's not a nostro vostro, but it's more yeah. of a wallet or a node in each other's networks, right? Yeah. Uh, trusted nodes and trusted networks. But in both cases, it's not like the currency is flowing, they're actually sending the currency across national borders. It's, it remains within their sphere of control. Yeah, one of the models certainly is to remain the, uh, the currency remains in its sovereign network, but the correspondent node sitting on the other currency network allows ownership of those assets to change. Yeah, that's a good metaphor for it, that correspondent banking. Uh, um, one of the, the, the constraints on the, on the growth of, of the, initially the cryptocurrency markets, but latterly the, the decentralized finance DeFi markets as well, has been the enormous transaction costs. So do we think that CBDCs can help to lower or even eliminate those transaction costs, those gas fees, which you see in um, in the way the DeFi markets has evolved? Or is there, is there a technical obstacle here which simply cannot be overcome, a, a, a constraint inside blockchain itself on speed and scalability? Or can CBDCs overcome that problem and make these transaction costs much lower or even get rid of them? I think the quick answer is yes, uh, although performance issues would persist, perhaps, you know, um, so even if you're paying uh, for a transaction with a with CBDC as your cash leg, you still have the asset leg on the other side. Mm. Just unpacking kind of, you know, the gas fees, why are the gas fees? So trying to get, you know, faster transactions paying so that your transaction can get processed much quicker. We've seen the emergence of layer two protocols in order to alleviate some of that. And some of that's garnered some good results, but a lot, a lot of work still going on on the layer twos. You know, a CBDC, um, the promise is that CBDC is much like cash is free. Um, who, who knows whether that persists as these things get issued. But, you know, the quick answer is, yeah, you'd imagine that there would be an opportunity to reduce the amount of money that folks are paying today in the public networks using a different form of money. Um, but, you know, again, what's the objective is to get your transaction finalized, you know, token-based CBDCs promise real-time settlement. Um, so it's a slightly different model than, than what we're seeing on the public side. Mm -hmm. But that idea of, of, of paying more to settle something faster, right? I heard what you just said, but we sometimes forget that these digital forms of money can actually be quite dynamic, can't they? And so if you start to think about the different ways in which a CBDC could be dynamic, you could start to have programmable CBDCs or, or CBDCs that are programmed differently for different purposes. So you might use one 
version of the CBDC to pay for your cup of coffee in the morning. You might use another version to settle your security token trade super fast. You might uh, use the third one to pay your VAT at the point of transaction or pay your income tax. Or you might use a fourth version uh, to get financial aid to people who are suffering because of a natural disaster, a flood or an earthquake or something. So this flexibility, this dynamism in digital forms of money, including CBDCs, means there are you'd have different CBDCs for different use cases. Is that a sensible way to look at to look at this? How important is that programmability in a CBDC going to be? Yeah, I mean one of the one of the biggest kind of value propositions that we talk about and certainly that's being explored is the programmable nature of money. So money now becomes programmable. Why is that exciting? Well, today today you'd say, oh, money is programmable. Like we can control payments and you can do that today. If you go into certain apps, you're like, oh, look, I can send my kids some cash and he's not allowed to spend that in these kind of you know institutions or in these companies or in these organizations, what have you. Um, but the rules uh, are attached to the wallet, not the money. So it's the wallet that's controlling it. And as your money moves from wallet to wallet, you have to replicate those rules, you know, from wallet to wallet, note to note. The promise here is, of course, is that the rules and the money and the asset live together. And so you don't have this replication. You don't have this issue of, gosh, I got it wrong. You know, the one wallet allowed him to do something. The other one didn't. And so that's a massive opportunity. I'd say to you that, you know, on the wholesale side, again, it's much easier to think about, you know, programmable money. Um, you're not touching necessarily the values that that money has for society. As it moves into the retail side, yeah, it's a double-edged sword. You know, uh, 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 Dominic is allowed to go to the ATM, withdraw cash and use that cash wherever he'd like. You know, that's the promise of the pound, right? Um, now, if you now have the same uh, pound, but now as a digital form and it's restricting you, you know, are those values being broken? So we need to be very careful about that particular aspect. But yes, the promise is, is that it is programmable. You can have different forms for different things. You know, we talk about food tokens quite a bit. We talk about, you know, the ability to uh, have this notion of um, uh, uh, kind of programmable money at different layers where the central bank can provide a set of controls and then it provides a template to the wholesale network where they can extend those controls, you know, so that's pretty interesting and we're exploring that. Um, but yeah, double-edged sword, I think, I think there's great promise there, but we need to be very careful with how we implement that on the retail side. Can we talk a little bit about how CBDCs will fit into the evolution of the, the digital economy generally if we are moving as i think we are from this web 2 world in which these large uh, data driven corporations with with free products and services in exchange for um selling your your personal data towards the web 3 world uh, where the vision is 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 we will be genuinely private there will be peer to peer exchanges those will be uh those will be anonymous and it will be de decentralized, not centralized like Facebook and, and Google. Now, a CBDC, on the face of it, could play the same role in that Web3 economy as notes and coins do today. It's an entirely private, anonymous exchange of value. But quite a lot will hinge upon people believing that the CBDC is private. Some of those techniques we talked about earlier, you know, zero knowledge proofs, secure enclaves. Do you think they are sufficiently reassuring solutions to the problem of, of privacy for a CBDC to play the same role in a Web3 economy as uh, notes and coins do in the uh, in the analog economy of today? Yeah, again, it goes back to the earlier conversation. So education is going to be key um, to unlocking that opportunity. The promise is there for sure. Um, you know, the three key things that I think about in Web3 is you know, it's distributed, it's peer-to-peer, -peer, so some form of a blockchain DLT. You've got identity, which is yours now, it's sovereign. You've got control of it, which is important. And then you've got a, a kind of, you know, a digital currencies and cryptocurrencies that allow kind of the real-time settlement of stuff um, that you're buying out in Web3. So 
So, you know, on the money side, again, you know, why would you choose a CBDC versus other form of payment? Education is going to be important there. And then trusting the tech back to that conversation um, and how will we enable that? So, you know, it's important also to unpack the different forms uh, or models for CBDC, account-based versus token-based. You know, you, uh, again, uh, more education on an accounts-based CBDC, you've got more or less the same concerns as we have today with accounts. You know, they are visible, they are uh, held in institutions or in uh, ledgers that are ultimately controlled by uh, something or someone versus token-based CBDCs, which really emulate what cash and coins, you know, uh, uh, notes and coins are today. And that it's a token, it lives on your phone, you lose the phone, you lose your money. Um, but do you really understand what that means and, and, and kind of the privacy that that might enable you? So the promise is there, the technology is there. I think legally, politically, and educationally, there's a lot more work to be done. Now, the culminating point of, of Web3 is the metaverse, I, I suppose, in which you will require that, that strong digital identity you've just, you've just referred to. But in its fully mature, fully interoperating form, people are going to be buying and selling, you know, doing business, doing transactions, going shopping um, in this metaverse. Is a CBDC the right currency for people to complete those transactions in or do you expect there will be multiple forms of payment in the metaverse yeah i mean before we go there the metaverse versus web three i think we talked about this previously it's like well what's the difference certainly in my mind you know i don't know whether you've been to decentraland and other kind of metaverses that are emerging um, it's a little bit like you know I've, i see my son playing minecraft i'd suggest to you that that is the uh, ultimate example of a metaverse today, you know, where you are, you have an avatar, you're walking around, you're doing stuff. And it's a very kind of, uh, you know, um, uh, kind of uh, VR type experience if you've had that, um, which is fun. I'm not sure whether we have everything in place today to make it really sticky. You know, you walk around, you, you Decentraland and so on. Um, and it's important that the experience of a metaverse is different to Web3, Web3 being the technologies that might enable that, or the underlying technologies that enable identity, enable peer-to-peer, -peer, and enable kind of, you know, payments using digital forms of money versus virtual reality and other kind of uh, technologies that then kind of uh, bring the metaverse to life. So again, you know, uh, you're in the metaverse and you pop into a store and you wanna buy an NFT, you know, uh, what form of money do you use? I think it's just about optionality. I mean, you have options today, don't you? You walk into a store and you're like, should I pay with cash or should I pay with my Apple Pay or should I pay with my MasterCard or my Visa card? So you've got all these options. Right. And, and and it's, uh, you know, as a, as a retailer, again, you have to get educated as to what form of money makes sense for what for the transactions that you're, that you're kind of wanting to complete. So, yeah, I think, listen, it should be a form of money that's there. But again, education is required to say to you, hey, uh, Dominic, if you use a CBDC, you know, you can trust that it is fully anonymous. So, you know, no one's going to see this this particular transaction mm -hmm. uh, versus other forms of money that perhaps would be less uh, private. But if we if we view the, the transactional side of the metaverse like that, so for the consumer, the question is, what is the cheapest and most private way of paying for this NFT, which I've bought? What's the cheapest, safest to deliver, if you like? And from the, the merchant's point of view in the metaverse, it's what is the, the safest and fastest form of me receiving value from this customer who's just bought the, the NFT. Does that make the, the metaverse like a useful simulation of the real world to run proofs of concepts, uh, even pilot tests of of different forms of of CBDCs. Do you think? Hey, maybe that'll emerge. You know, we've been talking a little bit about kind of you know a global kind of simulated environment where we could you know test all these different forms of money, and maybe that's where we get to. Honestly, today I don't see any of that in my universe. We don't see any um, uh, public sector organisations exploring that just yet. 
Although you do see a lot of private sector organizations making claims to be in the metaverse, doing some metaverse stuff. Um, so it's not too far a stretch of the imagination to assume that maybe we could get there. Maybe that would be a really good test bed. Um, but I don't, I'm not sure that we have all the controls that the public sector would need in order to make that leap just mm -hmm. yet. One final question for you, uh, Ricardo, it's this. You know, we've had nearly a year now of deflation, if you like, in the in the cryptocurrency markets and the DeFi markets, um, which has accelerated in 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 recent weeks. Some of the hype has come off the the metaverse as well. Yet we still, uh, as we look at these 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 new marketplaces, these new technologies, how they're developing, almost all the applications inside them, DeFi applications, are, are ultimately dollar denominated to the world's premier reserve currency still underpins even these most innovative uh, um, products and services in, in financial services. So do we think when, uh, and I may be misreading the Federal Reserve here, but I think they're not that enthusiastic about uh, issuing a US dollar uh, CBDC. So is is that in your view, potentially a uh, a strategic mistake. So if the financial markets do move more towards a DeFi style model, um, if there isn't a US dollar CBDC available, will the US dollar continue to dominate the financial markets in that new, uh, on that new model? Yeah, big debate. I mean, you know, uh, Colin Powell's been very clear, we're going to do it slow, we're going to do it, you know, kind of well rather than fast. Um, not verbatim, but certainly that's the message. And you see the same from the UK. You know, we're taking this thing really slow. Um, just recently, you would have seen, uh, even as recently as this week, I believe, the announcement of the Fed in a project uh, called the RLN, the Regulated Liability Network. Um, so certainly we see the Fed exploring different kinds of models. Uh, the RLN is an interesting model, allows wholesale settlement using, you know, different forms of money, public, private uh, money, all mixed in kind of one network, which is really interesting. Um, using central bank digital money as the final form of settlement. Um, so, so, you know, um, that's one opportunity. The other things that we see, and this is, you know, Ricardo's opinion only, you know, might the Fed not issue a domestic CBDC, but might it look to issue perhaps, you know, an international CBDC in order to retain uh, kind of its position or, or at least participate in what's evolving as, you know, many different forms of digital money globally. So jury's out very, very early. I'd suggest you that the Fed has been uh, very cautious in its exploration. You see a lot of other central banks being a lot more uh, kind of um, a lot more uh, kind of uh, advanced, if you like, or not advanced, that's not the word, but you know, running as fast as they can towards this opportunity and sometimes, you know, falling foul of certain things. So, you know, I think that certainly for me, it's the right approach. Take it slow. I mean, we've seen the last six months, uh, even the last six weeks being super volatile. So who knows, uh, Dominic, very early, man, but many different models are out there. I'd suggest synthetic CBDCs. Again, I, I, I talked about finality earlier. That's an interesting model. Certainly the, the Fed, I believe, is looking at that as well. So who knows, man, in the next uh, couple of years, we'll probably have a better view of what that looks like. Ricardo Correa, thanks very much for taking the time to share your knowledge and experience with the members of Future of Finance.